Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. Could Biden break the historical pattern of the, you know, midterms going badly? Absolutely. But we could hold both these houses. But we have to say the right things. And we have to note the Republicans always close well. Why? Because they find some new way to scare the living daylights out of swing voters about something. That's what they did in 2021, where they made critical race theory sound worse than smallpox. And it wasn't being taught in any public schools in America. But they didn't care. They just scare people. So there you go. There's a familiar voice from the past there, Mike Murphy. A shrewd political strategist who recognizes that the R's do close well. Although that scare voter stuff, I still remember, as you probably do, being Jurassic like me, those old Democratic ads with the scissors cutting the Social Security card in half. So we're table that, that part of President Clinton's analysis. But I think he's essentially right. We shouldn't table it because I I think that there's some strength to it, but there's nobody better to mull over the midterms uh, and the politics of this moment than Mo Alithi, the distinguished director of the Institute of Politics at Georgetown University and the former communications director for the Democratic National Committee. Mo, it's good to be with you, brother. I'm thrilled and honored to be here. I was joking with Murphy earlier, like I've been wondering what a guy has to do to get invited to be on this esteemed program. Well, so. we, we call it the Chicago way, Mo. You're just a little envelope. Yes, thank you. We, Murphy <laughs> and I divided it up and the invitation went out. By the way, I have to say, this is, you might have to Google it a few listeners, Hoya Saxa, my friend. We are Hoya both SFSers. Saxa. That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly You're right. You actually this graduated. Of- I'm still on a leave of absence. I got suckered into <laughs> well, a congressional campaign. Back. And uh, yeah, yeah, I got to do a Chicago way deal with the school there and trying to get the parchment worked out. But anyway, great to have you here. Until they put Murphy on the basketball team, he refuses to come back. Damn right. So, well, it's just the way well, We it might is. need the help. We might need the help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I'd be an improvement, which says everything. <laughs> Let's just pick up where uh, Bill Clinton left off. And you're right, probably the shrewdest political mind who's been in the White House in our lifetime. I mean, he's very, very savvy uh, on politics. You do see, Mike, these uh, midterms. It feels like, and you look at polling, it feels like the summer of exultance on the part of Democrats who thought they were absolutely dead is now, you know, there's some gravitational forces at play here. Yeah, totally. I'll just, you know, and we talk about this a little bit on the Hacks on Tap newsletter. I also did our friend Dan Senor's podcast about it because there, you know, a lot of people try to use this polling as a therapy animal. Oh, thank God we're going to win now. I can relax. It's it's August 28th. And it it's not nearly that predictive. It's a great tool to know where public opinion is now, and it gives you hints to where it may be going. But we went through this deal where the polling was so bad, the Dems all got demoralized. Then you had kind of a confirmation bubble. We're back. It's over. Uh, we're going to be fine. And now, the as you put it, the gravity of a midterm where historically the party in power loses double-digit seats in the House. 
Uh, we have huge inflation. Um, you can argue maybe it's ameliorating a little, but fundamentally that historically has been very bad for the party in power. And we got a big wrong track election. So the Dems have opportunities based on Republican clown shoe behavior, but fundamentally it's kind of reverting to mean as the election gets closer for an off year. And so the Republicans are having a bit of a comeback in the conventional wisdom now, which is so easy to hustle with polling data to get back to my main point. But Mo Murphy doesn't want to talk about this, but there is something to what Clinton said about the Republican discipline and kind of they hunker down on some issues that are meant to, yes, inflame their base and excite their base, but also to try and win over independent voters. And we see crime ads surfacing everywhere. We're going to talk about that in a little, in a little bit. But also, we see this big effort on the part of Governor DeSantis in Florida, the governor of Texas, to put immigration on the agenda. And last week, DeSantis sent 50. We can discuss whether it was, we've heard the term kidnapping. That seems harsh, although the sheriff down there in San Antonio is opening an investigation about how they were spirited away. But he, he flew 50 asylum seekers from Venezuela to Martha's Vineyard as part of a stunt to put greater attention on the immigration issue. Is that, a, is it effective? I think it could be. I mean, look, the Republicans have done a good job historically of tapping into emotional issues that mobilize their base and can oftentimes frighten swing voters. They seem to be leaning into that right now after sort of their early um, uh, messaging strategy started to, I think, I'm not going to say hit a brick wall, but wasn't getting the same traction now that it was earlier in the cycle. So the, 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 they're diving into that. And one of the reasons why I think is because Democrats are doing the same. Democrats have uh, ever since the Supreme Court decision on abortion came down, have made that a central focus of their campaign in order to mobilize the Democratic base and scare some swing voters. So, you know, it, it's really fascinating to watch. Six months ago, we were saying this was going to be all about inflation. But right now, the campaign, as it's shaping up today, and there's still, you know, at least three eternities between now and the end of voting, but at least the way it's shaping up today is that cultural issues um, are really proving to be dominant uh, in both parties. Uh, and I guess part of this is going to be trying to figure out which one just has more resonance at the end of the day. Yeah, I think the the scary monster playbook is built into both parties. They just have different scary monsters. And, you know, the weird thing about the Republicans is they provided one scary orange monster to the Democrats for free, who's been a pretty effective uh, election tool for them over the last couple of cycles. But this crime thing, you know, the Republicans don't have geniuses to figure this out. You don't have to be a genius. The Democratic left went on a big defund the police bender. There is highly visible crime. You can argue crime statistics versus crime perception, but the perception is crime is increasing. So the Republicans are set up perfectly to say, yeah, they're crazy. They're for defending. They hate the cops. We're pro-cop. And they're, they're running that play, and it's working in some places. 
Politics 101. I don't want to leave immigration, but let, let's just on the crime point, uh, there's a very specific target here, which are these suburban voters yeah. who are the swing voters in in uh, in most elections these days, and certainly in the swing House and, and Senate districts uh, this year. Those voters have been impacted by the Dobbs decision, I think a little bit put off by Trump's antics, uh, repelled by some of Trump's choices. Uh, but this is an issue that has some power out in the suburbs, and uh, clearly that is that is what Republicans have in mind. But before we leave the immigration thing, uh, Murphy, uh, I want to talk about DeSantis uh, because he's got an interesting uh, – both he and, and Abbott in Texas are up this year. But he, more even more than Abbott, seems to be running two campaigns at once. He's running a general election campaign in Florida, which he seems pretty comfortable about. And then he's running a uh, primary campaign for 2024. It seems to me that this is as much aimed in his own for his own personal politics of 2024, because there's a big Venezuelan or a, a, a sizable Venezuelan population in Florida. And this wasn't exactly a popular tactic with them, was it? Well, it, you know, it's it's fascinating because he is running a primary campaign now. That's the dominant campaign in his life. The the governor's reelection campaign is just a little elevator music unless he gets in trouble with Charlie Crist. Then unless the pivot. elevator gets stuck. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it might. I think I think in this year DeSantis will win, but I think uh Crist is a highly capable if somewhat flexible politician. And uh, we'll see what happens there. But look, I'm from the Republican Party where refugees from communism were embraced, not turned into props, hustled, and maybe I want to see what the Bayer County Sheriff comes up with. But there's some at least allegations that they were kind of misled and hustled into being a big stupid photo op to get a few Fox News hits. I think even in his Republican base world, these tactics are a little too clever by half. And he opens himself up for a pretty big counterattack. We are on the side, we conservatives of Venezuelan refugees. So so we're seeing. But in his domestic politics, yeah, it, uh, he's showing kind of a cavalier attitude about that, that, you know, the data showing a four or five point race doesn't really back up. We, we'll see if Chris can take advantage of it. Yeah. Mo, what do you, uh, what do you think about DeSantis as you know, not not the overall tactic, because I kind of agree with you that it, you know, Republicans want to their basic message is they'd love to talk about crime, immigration, inflation and Biden and lay it all at Biden's feet. And uh, there is a problem at the border. Dem uh, Democrats make a mistake when they say the border is secure, as the vice president did. Uh, people know that there's a problem at the border. It's been there for years. It hasn't been ameliorated. So I agree with you that that's a good tactic. What what do you think this does for DeSantis? I mean, the interesting thing about Ron DeSantis, you know, look, first of all, everyone says he's the front runner if if were it not for Trump, right, in 2024 and may actually be the one guy that could that could play Trump's game and go toe to toe with him. Uh, we're all old enough to remember that at this point in 2000 and eight Rudy Giuliani was that guy and right in, in 20 uh uh we can go through the people who are in, in 2016 Jeb Bush was that guy at this point in the cycle ouch don't um, mention that yeah no. we'll have to see yeah sorry we'll have to see <laughs> I'm recovered now 
how he <laughs> is as a candidate once the campaign actually gets going. But the thing I find really interesting about DeSantis as a, as a potential candidate is, look, he is trying to claim the, the MAGA mantle. And he's one of the few candidates who are doing it without having to rely on uh, pushing the big lie about the 2020 election. You look at all these Senate candidates around the country that Trump endorsed in large part because they bought into and they pushed the lie about the 2020 election. They're still talking about it. I mean, it's the greatest gift the Democratic Party has right now is Mm -hmm. that so many of these Republican candidates are not talking about immigration. They're not talking about crime. They're still talking about the 2020 election. Uh, DeSantis is kind of going a different route and we'll see if he's successful, but it's an interesting theory, right? That, that, that can he be the MAGA guy, um, by tapping into other you know, other arguments rather than just placating Donald Trump's eco. He's a culture vulture. Any cultural yeah. issue he can leap, leap, leap into, he does. But but the other thing, just to, let me interject for a sec, on DeSantis, what the DeSantis science experiment proves now, because who knows who's going to win the primaries, but it shows that Trump is weak enough in Republican world that there's room for somebody big and serious to go out there and maneuver against him and not immediately get shut out of the party. You know, the very fact there's an opening for DeSantis to do what he's doing um, shows that the Republican, a significant chunk of the Republican electorate isn't anti-Trump, but they want to move on to somebody new and fresh and mm-hmm. not as backward looking. Listen, I kind of think, you know, I say more about this later. I had Adam Kinzinger on my uh, Axe Files podcast this week, and he said, look, I don't think DeSantis is going to run against Trump. He said, uh, I think if Trump runs, Trump's going to be the nominee. And he said, and DeSantis is going to say, hey, I can run in four years or eight years. But he's 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 there uh, in case Trump doesn't run. And as a plausible legatee of Trump's, you know, whole act. Um, but uh, to your point, Mo, he's actually been pretty clever about um uh, about uh, how he approaches these election issues, for example, mm-hmm. like he doesn't he doesn't dwell on 2020, but he did. He created an election law right. police force in Florida, so he'll go to a MAGA crowd and he'll say, "We're already, you know, we our police are out there. We're going to crack down on the fraud." And uh, so he, you know, he he tickles the bone, uh, or he tickles whatever. Uh, and they uh, and, and they respond to that. What about the crime issue, Mo? And how powerful a tool is that? That's traditionally been a strong tool for Republicans. Murphy points out Democrats, and very few, by the way. But there were voices Enough. on the left on defund <laughs> police. No, I, I actually think it was it was relatively few. Mm-hmm. But no, my point is enough to let it become a thing. It's totally a thing here in L.A. It's a progressive city. So we have plenty of local Democrats who are proudly to fund the cops. And therefore, it gets into the, you know, into the debate and it becomes a thing. And the Republicans gleefully out in the suburbs bounce off it. Yeah, I I honestly don't know. I don't know. Although there's a policing bill that's held up in the House by the left uh, that uh, because I think it does commit more to police and they probably should pass that bill. Well, and Murphy, the thing, the thing though, is in a lot of these house races, 
Republicans are probably bouncing off of it, but so are a lot of Democratic candidates. Yeah, they're trying to triangulate their way out of the and, trouble. And it's, yeah. not, and it's not even triangulating. I mean, to, to Axe's point, a lot of these, it is not the mainstream position within the Democratic Party amongst its voters or even amongst the majority of its candidates. And so there are a lot of districts out there where you've got, you know, swing districts where you've got Democratic candidates saying, I never was for defund the police. I am not for defund the police. And that's actually helping them position themselves um, as uh, as independent voices in some way. So I'm not sure it is the surefire winner for Republicans in a lot of these districts that they think they are. It's giving opportunities to Democrats. One of the interesting tactics, Mike, that some Democratic candidates are using are attacking Republicans for voting uh, against the Rescue Act, which had funding for Comp police money in it. Uh, yeah, yeah. With, within it. Yeah. But but still, if we step back, if the election is a debate on Biden economics, which in the latest NBC poll, his disapproval on the cost of living is in the 60s on handling the economies. It's in the high 50s, higher than his overall disapproval, and it's about crime, and it's about the border, that's a Republican election. Even if the Democrats are shrewdly tactically saying, wait a minute, I'm not for defend the cops, right. it's still, it's being fought on Republican advantage territory. So why aren't, why aren't Republicans running on that? Because it seems to me, watching this, this uh, cycle play out, that the Democrats have an opportunity. I'm not sure they're fully capitalizing on it, right? But with all this other noise, whether we're talking about the, uh, the DeSantis stunt with the shipping of the migrants or whether you're talking about Lindsey Graham uh, introducing uh, a ban on abortion or, on, or whether you're talking about any number of Republican candidates who are talking about the 2020 election, they're talking about at, at local level, talking about um, banning books in libraries. It seems like Democrats have an opportunity here. To actually lean in and say, you know what? Here's the difference. Yeah, the cost of gas and milk is too high. We're at least trying to deal with that. What yeah. are they doing? They're trying to ban abortion. They're playing politics with with people's lives. They're they're banning books in school libraries. Yeah, that look, that's the general election offense. I I, I totally agree tactically they ought to be doing more of it. The Republicans, remember, it's a two-headed deal. In the primary, it's all the crazy stuff. The minute they get to a general election, it's fire the Democrat, Biden, inflation and crime and the border. So but they're not doing that. They're not doing that in a lot of races. Well, no, no. If you look at the paid media, they they, they are. It gets muddled up because they, they tend to treat general elections like Republican primaries, like DeSantis is doing, which is not advantageous and a tough general. But but I do believe they're in the middle of the big pivot from it to the ones that are saying about it, which is hopefully two-thirds um, uh, into general election argument. Most of the paid advertising is crime and border stuff right now, some inflation and cost of goods. And there's a huge investment. I mean, this is what's turning the race. And I mean, Ohio should be a yeah. Republican state. That's what's beginning to turn the race in Ohio. Just tons of Republican money poured too. in behind those, those no, issues. Right. We're seeing it in Wisconsin, too, where yeah. you know, the Democrats starting to, to stop. Yeah. New poll today in Wisconsin, a dead heat, basically. I think yeah. Barnes, the Democrat, is up 49-48. Uh, there's always been this question. He's He's very progressive, African-American candidate from Milwaukee. Uh, how does a state like Wisconsin, which so evenly divided uh, in a year like this, respond? You know, now Johnson's the incumbent 
unpopular, but he was unpopular in the past, and he's navigated his way through these rocky shoals. So Wisconsin's a race that Democrats hope to make uh, pick up a seat. It's very, I think, um, it's dicey <laughs> right yeah, now. Yeah, well, what say. the Johnson people would tell you, and I'm an old Wisconsin guy, did Tom, Governor Thompson's reelect, is they're, they were dying in the primary because there were multiple Democratic candidates for somebody that could make the race not about them because Johnson has bad numbers. Uh, and with the progressive level with Mandela Barnes, they do have something to work with now that a more Teflon candidate wouldn't have given them. So, you know, that's made that in an already competitive state even a trickier race for the Ds. And, you know, yeah. Johnson is vulnerable. So that's why it's like two points in most of the polling. It is a razor tight race. So we'll see what happens there. Georgia is a race that, you know, Democrats were very high on in the summer. A lot of fun being made of Herschel Walker, the former football great who was stumbling all over himself on the campaign trail. Chinese clouds. Yeah, exactly. But uh, that race is, there are a couple of polls out this morning, you guys. Atlanta Journal-Constitution has uh, Walker up by two. Uh, another poll has Warnock up by two, both under 40. This one could go to a runoff again. Georgia could end mm-hmm. up being once yeah. again in a position to decide who controls the U.S. Senate. But I, wanna, I wanted to play a little bite. You know, Walker's been avoiding debates with Warnock, who, uh, of course, is the pastor of the Ebenezer ba- Baptist Church and is a great presenter. Uh, and he's finally agreed to a debate in front of a crowd in Savannah and he was asked about preparing for the debate, and this is what he said. You told me I got to prepare, so I'm preparing. I'm this country boy. You know, I'm not that smart. And he's that preacher. He's a smart man, wear these nice suits. So he's going to show up and embarrass me at the debate October the 14th. And I'm just waiting. You know, I show up, and I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best. <laughs> you know, very, very shrewd. Um because he's managed to just clobber expectations and revert to his persona of just one of us. Uh, so I, I think that was that was pretty shrewd, David. What do you think? And then I want to call back a memory that it, it makes me think of. There were a bunch of commentators who said, wow, he's, not, he's saying he's not smart and the other guy's smart and everything. I think this was sort of a brilliant stroke because it wasn't just that he was lowering expectations for the debate, but he really jumped into the cultural cleavage, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and he sort of struck a blow against the smarty pants, you know, liberal elites who looked down their nose at, you know, working class voters and so on. I mean, that's really the, uh, isn't that the underpinning of his message? Oh, 100%. And you're right. He, he, he killed two birds with one stone there, right? Like the expectations game. I always hate when campaign staff go out there and talk about how great of a debater their candidate is and because they then they rarely live up to those expectations right so he's managing the expectations thing but look i'm a firm believer that the single greatest cleavage in our politics today is not left versus right it is the streets versus the elites right Mm -hmm. the front versus the back and um and you've got very good candidates in both parties who recognize that and a lot of candidates who don't. Walker, for all of his flaws, all of his flaws, gets that and keeps tapping into that and propping Warnock up as a tool of the elites, if not an elitist himself. 
Um, now, I think Warnock is a much stronger candidate than a lot of people give him credit for being. Oh, I, I think is he why is, this, yeah. Which is why this race is is so close, given the, the politics of Georgia uh, and the political environment. It shouldn't be that close. But um, but for all of his flaws, that's one thing Walker keeps keeps coming back to. And I think it does serve him well. Yeah, totally, totally, particularly in a wrong track year like this. And, you know, it's funny, I... Hearing that, because this is the first shrewd move we've really seen out of the uh, Herschel Walker campaign, I was reminded of the old Saturday Night Live sketch during the Reagan era with the brilliant Phil Hartman playing Reagan, being his doddering self in front of the press, and then the reporter leaves and he's a strategic genius. We went to the Wayback Archives. Let's listen to a minute of that. Mr. President, about the Iran-Nicaraguan connection, some may wonder which was worse, your knowing or your not knowing. Well, all I can say is I didn't know. And well, we're trying to find out what happened because none of us know. (laughs) Well, thank you, Mr. President. Well, I hope I've answered your questions as best I could, given the very little that I know. Goodbye, and God bless you. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you very much. Okay, get back in here. All right, let's get down to business. I'm only going to go through this once, so it's essential that you pay attention. What? Casey, listen. You'll spearhead our new operation to fund the Contras. The C-5As with the tow missiles and grenade launchers will leave for South Africa at 08... So maybe it's, you know, who knows who this Senator Walker may turn out to be. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that Herschel Walker is having those kinds of meetings behind closed <laughs> doors, but it's a great it's a great bit. Before we leave Senate, Murphy, you want to talk about Nevada, which I think is also one of the races that's going to determine uh, control of the Senate. Uh, yeah, Nevada is so interesting. And of all these mega races, it gets the least press attention. There aren't a lot of public polls there. You know, it's it's not right on top of the East Coast like a Pennsylvania race or, or even Georgia. So the Democratic senator, Catherine Cortez Masto, has been in kind of generic senator in trouble, trouble for a while. So Adam Laxalt gets nominated and the Dems went right to the abortion issue, trying to capture all that energy. Shrewd move by the classic playbook. Nevada being one of the most pro-choice states. It's about as pro-choice as California is. But he's hung in there in the polling. And he's done an interesting thing. He's tried to, and it's kind of an echo what Lindsey Graham's bill was about. He's tried to kind of pivot and attack. He's got an op-ed. We, we have it in the Hacks on Tap newsletter, which is an interesting case study. And it'll be fascinating to see if it works. His argument is Nevada has already constantly constitutionally with a voter initiative protected abortion rights. So nothing's going to change. And my opponent, you know, Senator Cortez Masto is a wild eyed liberal, uh, late term abortions, all, all kinds of unpopular stuff on the other side. And we'll see if that can get him out of what yeah. ought to be a really tough environment on row. So far, you know, a point or two ahead or behind in the polling. Uh, and that one could be the pivot race. It's right up there with Georgia and Pennsylvania in importance. And Wisconsin. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know, Mo. I don't know what you think. I mean, I don't know if I'd want to fight it out on those grounds if I were Laxalt. I don't know that he's going to win that battle. But he's got offense. But go ahead, Mo. Yeah, fine. It's it's offense. But if I were him, I'd play offense somewhere entirely different, right? There are possibly no other state that is that whose economy is as impacted by inflation as Nevada, right? Like that entire state's economy 
the hospitality, gaming industry, entertainment industry, when there's high cost of living, they feel it in a way that a lot of other places uh, at, at an at a, a elevated level than uh, over a lot of other places. If I were him, there's nothing else I would be talking about. Every word that that is focused on the issue of abortion rather than that is a missed opportunity for him. He may have offense, but the underlying uh, argument is going to benefit her. And I will say this, there's maybe no state other than Georgia that sort of my generic Democratic operative Senate watcher friends are worried about than Nevada. But it is yeah. also one where um, the, they look at the quality of the candidate and think we are still hanging in there. The one of the things I keep hearing is that you will not find a harder working candidate running for the yeah. United States Senate than Catherine Cortez Masto, that she's very good on the stunt, that she's very good uh, at, at the mechanics of campaigning, and that she is working harder than almost any other incumbent. So, look, I think that one is, I'm, I'm with you. Mike, it's going to be one of the two or three pivotal races that will tell the, the that will tell the tale of the night. But I think Laxalt is actually missing more opportunities than he's seizing right now. The the problem, Mo, as you know, in Nevada is it's such a transient state that it's hard for incumbents to develop a relationship uh, yeah. with voters that uh, in a way that you can uh, in other states. But listen, I think those three states that we've discussed, Wisconsin, Georgia, Nevada, and Pennsylvania, where the Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman is running against Dr. Oz, those four states are going to determine, I believe, control of the United States Senate in uh, 2022. I agree. And, and I, I wouldn't stop keeping an eye on Ohio. I was just in Ohio over the weekend talking to a lot of people who are sort of your mainstream Republicans who think that Ryan might have that that if that he was the perfect Democratic nominee for that state in this year. And they think that it's going to be a few. The yeah. seesaw is going to go up and down a few more times before the dust settles there. He's running a great campaign, but boy, Ohio is hard in a year like this. I'll throw one more. Sure. And I'll, I'm talking my book here a little because he's my friend and I'm helping his super pack. But keep an eye on Utah. That's a tied race right now. And that yeah. incumbent, Mike Lee, is in trouble. And Evan McMullen is not the Washington General's Democrat candidate who's always destined to lose there. He's made it very competitive. He's a, well, he's not a Democrat candidate at all, which right, is the, what point. makes yeah. this race interesting. He's a he's a conservative. He's an independent, and the Democrats have not uh, have decided not to field a, a candidate there. So uh, that gives him an open shot at. Uh, to, to form a kind of center-left, center-right coalition. Right, and right uh, now the polling is basically tied 47-46. Um, you know, yeah. he's got that coalition. The question is, will the McConnell cavalry come in and bury him? Because he's made it clear he will not caucus with Schumer or McConnell. So the Dems are taking kind of a bemused look, but not a lot of financial support. Though the, the Democratic voters there tend to be much more anti-Lee and interested in McMullen. Uh, on Mo's point, I don't want to shortchange Tim Ryan. I think he's, I have said before, I think he's probably running the best race mm -hmm. of any Democratic candidate 
in the country in terms of understanding his state, speaking to the working class voters in his state, keeping mm-hmm. uh, keeping his opponent on defense. Uh, and by the way, someone else who's put, who put his opponent on defense uh, today is his opponent's main sponsor, uh, Donald Trump, who was in Ohio over the weekend. And uh, this is what he had to say about his candidate for the Senate, J.D. Vance. The New York Times did a fake story today, big front page, that J.D. wasn't sure if he wanted my support. J.D. is kissing my ass. He wants my support. This is a great person who I've really gotten to know. Yeah, he said some bad things about me, but that was before he knew me, and then he fell in love. He went on, by the way, to compare it to his relationship with Kim (laughs) Jong-un. So I don't know, man, with friends like that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's still a wave year. I mean, I, I know J.D. Vance. He called me up in his anti-Trump days to plot against the president. So I'm, you know, I'm for Ryan because uh, I think J.D. likes the character to be in the Senate. And I love Ryan's campaign. I wish the DNC would learn something from it. He's running the campaign farthest away from the Washington, D.C. center of Democratic gravity of anybody in the country. And it's been effective. But this is the kind of year you know, in a in a bad Republican year, I think he'd win. In a year like this, I think even a box of hammers may be able to win, and we're going to test that with J.D. Vance. <laughs> well, the, the thing that wraps up this whole discussion about the midterms is there are lots of forces at play here, There, but there are gravitational pulls. Right. Uh, you know, historically, only in 1934 and, and 2002 have the incumbent parties uh, – gained seats in the House. We haven't talked about the House. Uh, and uh, But, you know, the, the Republicans need just five to uh, take over the House. And the Senate is 50-50. Um, it's a tough environment. And the president's approval yeah. rating at 42, the inflation, what it, it, the gravitational forces are what Democrats are trying to defy. So far, they have defied gravity. Right. And it's not close, by the way, just historically, these are worse than normal midterm gravitational forces. His unfavorable is worse. His view on the economy is worse. Inflation is worse. Everything's worse. The question is, is this unique to now stuff, the Republican crazy factor, row overturning and maybe a surge in, in, in low turnout voters who are young, you know, is that enough to overcome a worse than normal midterm? I just want to do one polling rant. Because there's so much conventional wisdom and media attention on this generic ballot question for Congress, which party are you going to vote for? I think it's the worst question in polling. And and people totally in the therapy animal you know experience there are, are obsessing on that. Since World War II through 2018, the Democrats— And Murphy fought in World War II, by the way, but go ahead. Yeah, that's right. We, we taught that Schickel Gruber a lesson. Um, <laughs> The problem with that question, one is people change their opinions in the close. So in the summer, who knows what it really tells you? It's kind of a popularity question. And second, the popular vote for Congress and the results and number of seats are not directly aligned. Since World War II, it's been about a four and a quarter percent difference, by the way, favoring the Democrats. So in recent years, it's been less that way. Um, so it's just it's a misleading therapy uh, animal question that the press way overemphasizes. Well, Mo knows yeah. this. Uh, Democrats need to be six to eight points ahead to make real gains uh, in the House because of the way we distribute ourselves geographically. Yeah. So uh, that yeah. that is true. It, it's also true that Democrats have, you know, have improved their position by several points uh, over the summer. Yeah, I mean, look. I- 
and I'm full agreement. I hate that question, but I actually think this is unlike most midterms, right? I, I am not belittling the importance of those gravitational pulls. And I agree with you, Mike, that they are stronger than usual. But I think the other dynamics that are unique to this cycle, the quality of the candidates that Republicans have nominated in a number of yeah. these statewide mm-hmm. races, the continued dominance of Donald Trump in the news yeah. and yeah. how that is impacting yeah. the party, the Dobbs decision, There are a number of other factors that are at play that put the election at play in a year that it should not, right? Right. No, that's what, so yeah, right. That's the fascinating aspect. Will they, and in the Senate races, they might, I don't think in the House, but. We hosted here at Georgetown, the chairs of the Republican Governor Association and Democratic Governors Association on back-to-back nights. And I was expecting the, you know, Doug Ducey, the chair of the RGA to come in and be crowing. And he was, he was confident, but he had to admit that a lot of these governor's races are uh, much closer than a lot of people expected. And I heard Roy Cooper talking about going on offense uh, in a lot of places in ways that, that I wasn't necessary. I thought they were going to be fully focused on defense. Well, we should note that Ducey didn't get the candidate of his choice in his own state in his own to state. succeed him. That's exactly right. Carrie Lake, who is a full out election denier and Trump candidate, is is neck and neck with her uh, opponent, Katie Hobbs. I like her new campaign slogan, though. Crazy times demand a crazy governor. <laughs> I think it's, it's showing some traction in the polling right now. Did you put that in the suggestion box over there? <laughs> well, I, uh, I might have emailed an idea or two. Before we move on to the mailbag, I want to talk about the president because he 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 caused a kerfluffle this weekend when he was on 60 Minutes talking about answering the question about whether he he was going to run for re-election. Let's listen to that. Sir, are you committed to running again, or are there certain conditions that have to be right? Look, if I were to say to you, I'm running again, all of a sudden, a whole range of things come into play that I have uh, requirements I have to change and move and do. In terms of election laws? In terms of election laws. And it's much too early to make that kind of decision. I'm a great respecter of fate. And so what I'm doing is I'm doing my job. I'm going to do that job. And within the time frame that makes sense after this next election cycle here, going into next year, make a judgment of what to do. You say that it's much too early to make that decision. I take it the decision has not been made in your own head. Look, my intentions, I said to begin with, is that I would run again. But it's just an intention. But is it a firm decision that I've run again? That remains to be seen. <laughs> yeah, so that last that last part got everybody all a Twitter on Twitter. Yeah, I'll defend it. Well, first of all, you're in the yeah. 60 Minutes demo, Axe. I'm down here in TikTok with the kids, so I, I didn't actually, <laughs> yeah. actually see it. Yeah. You got to tell me what's on Dumont tomorrow night. Yeah. But I feel a little sorry for this Biden. Is, this is the guy who, cl- who quotes 50s and 60s television on a regular basis, but go ahead. Right. No, exactly. Uh, and I, I want to go out today with some Eddie Canner numbers. Uh, <laughs> so, but, you know, that question. Well, it's almost Rosh Hashanah, so Canner would be good. But anyway, go ahead. All right. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to a physics analogy here for our Brainiac okay. audience. That question suffers from the old physics concept of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, because the conducting of the experiment changes the outcome. You know, it's not neutral because you can't answer that question if you're Biden. If you say what's if you honestly answer it, 
you know, hell yeah, I'm running. Then boom, you create a big news cloud and all kinds of stuff of no benefit to you right now. If you say, what are you crazy? I'm 108. I'm not going to run. Then you've started another H-bomb in politics. So that is a question that cannot be answered by a president honestly at this point. And he danced around it, but by the nature of it, you're going to be dancing. And I thought it would, it had, let's put it this way, the question before it was about Taiwan and China, and he quoted strategic ambiguity. Well, I thought he he pivoted right into more strategic ambiguity. So I'm not going to beat him up on that. Probably people want him to show more ambiguity on Taiwan and less on this, but. (laughs) I agree. I'm I'm glad you played the first part of his answer there, actually. It's important. Because most most of the media has not, because. Because he's absolutely right. If he were to say, yes, I am running for re-election, uh, you know, bells go off at the Federal Elections Commission saying, where's your paperwork, right? He, right. It, it sets off some federal legal requirements that they're not ready for yet right, as, a, right. as a campaign. So he, he basically said that he was by saying, it is my intention, but falling short of that trigger that that requires him to start raising money and, and opening up campaign accounts. Yes, I agree with everything that you said. And and l- let me say two things. One is, I don't think anybody out there other than people like us and people in the media are give a, a shit about whether he's announcing two and a half years or two and a quarter right. or whatever yeah, years oh, ahead that he's yeah. running for president. This is, this is an inside thing. But the reason it's an inside thing is because he's not like any other president. If he were 60, if he were 50, nobody would be doubting this, no matter what happens in the midterms. Uh, you know, Barack Obama got his ass kicked in the midterms. Bill Clinton got his ass kicked in the midterms. They both came back and got reelected, Obama by quite a margin in the Electoral College. That's not the issue. The issue is Biden turns 80 in December, and uh, that is what occasions the questions. And honestly, that is what should be that that's what he needs to reflect on as he makes his decision and in that context i thought when he said i respect fate i thought that he gave a very honest answer as honest as you can with that question which you can't right, answer right 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 but i mean i think what he was saying also is you know uh, when i make i'll make the decision when i think i need to make the decision and and i'll consider all the factors and he should consider all the factors but i thought that way too much was was made of of yeah but you know shocker washington press corps massively overreacts to trivia you know that's the not just the press corps but the political community as well but we're in one big incestuous pond as it were (laughs) so well wait a second mo you're being really quiet on that am i wrong on this age thing no no look he has said from the day after his inauguration he intends to run for re-election I have no reason to doubt that he intends to run for re-election. I think he is planning to run for re-election. I don't think you walk away from this after chasing it for 30, 40 years. Once you get it, I don't think you walk away from it unless you have to. And I think that's, that's the only question. Does he feel like he has to? I'm with you. I don't think poll numbers are going to scare him away. I don't think midterm results will scare him away. I think he still believes that he's the right guy for the right moment. I think he still believes that he is the only guy who can beat Donald Trump should Donald Trump be the Republican nominee again. So I think all signs point to him running for reelection. But I think, I think when he says something like, I respect fate, he is signaling that like, I'm not going to do something that is not 
right for me or for the country. And if his health, which I think is the only factor that keeps him out of the race, if his health takes a turn, if there's that reason, then he will step away. But I don't think he intends to for any other reason. Or if he can make some, like I keep saying, his problem is the, the question is not political, it's actuarial. He has to make some judgment, not just about what his health is now, but what it's like what to it be president be. from the age of 82 to 86. Yeah, yeah. Right. And that is that right. is what he has to consider. You know, he's had an amazing run this summer of stuff that, I mean, it's not like he doesn't have stuff he could run on. And we don't know where the economy is going to be in two years. So like I said, it's not a political decision. It's a decision about whether he feels is right at this stage in his life to do it. And, and that comes up everywhere in polling as well. There's one answer to this question, and we're back to gravity. They all want to run again if they are able to, politically and physically. And of course they'll run again if he thinks he can, uh, in the wider interest of not just himself but the country. The problem he'll have is that he's hit his high point. He's going to lose the appropriations process when the Republicans take the House, which is highly likely. I don't know about the Senate. And so his power to do things will be curbed, and then he might face a primary. So Rocky wrote ahead, David's right. He had a tremendous bunch of bipartisan accomplishments this year he hasn't gotten full credit for. But uh, the old quit while you're ahead thing is not a, not a dumb piece of folk wisdom. Well, on that note about quitting while we're ahead, we yeah, got to no, take the mail back. to the yeah. music. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, dear listeners, if you have a question for the hacks, send it to us at hacksontap at gmail.com. That is hacksontap at gmail.com. If it involves tricky constitutional law, reach out to our super listener and legal expert, Mr. Nick Stralitz. I said I'd plug his name. He's a big listener. Thank you, Nick. And don't forget to subscribe to the Hacks on Tap newsletter. It's free. comes by email twice a week. Gibbs and I do it because we can't afford Axelrod, but we have a lot of fun and we talk about stuff we don't always get to on the podcast. All you got to do is go to hacksontap.bulletin.com, hacksontap.bulletin.com. Okay. Oh, by the way, go blue. One of our producers paid me a nickel to say that, some University of Michigan scam. Let's get to the questions, David. This is for you. Patrick wants to know, dear professor, if the GOP wins the House by a small majority, is it possible that the fractured GOP doesn't sufficiently get behind Kevin McCarthy as speaker and the Dems unite behind Nancy Pelosi and she gets elected speaker of a House that's still majority Republican? Wow. A lot of twists and turns in that plot, David. What do you say? Yes. And and I think it will remain a fiction. <laughs> I do think that it's like likely that if the House majority is narrowly Republican, that McCarthy is in jeopardy. I had this discussion with uh, Adam Kinzinger on, on the Axe Files this week. Uh, in fact, this is what he said. Here's the thing I have learned about Donald Trump. He respects people, even if he won't say it, yeah, stick to what they believe. I guarantee he probably has a great deal of respect for Liz Cheney. He does not respect people that suck up to him. And you see that because everybody that sucks up to him at some point gets thrown out by Donald Trump. He just doesn't have respect for them. And I think that's his feeling on Kevin McCarthy. And I think, particularly if there's a narrow Republican majority, it only takes five Republicans or six Republicans to come together, deny Kevin the speakership because they want, let's say, Jim Jordan, or they have this idea that Donald Trump can sit as speaker. Any of them can do that. And I know these Freedom Caucus members fairly well. 
And I know that they have no problem turning their back on him, and they will. So there you go. I, I think that uh, McCarthy could be in jeopardy with a narrow uh, majority. Will Would they turn to Nancy Pelosi? First of all, I don't think Nancy Pelosi is going to be in the House next year. I think that she has done her duty, and I think she will uh, likely – I have not inside information – at all, by the way, my 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 hypothesis is that she will step down after uh, after the election, uh, whatever, regardless of what happens, uh, and that uh, to make way for new leadership. Uh, but I think Republicans will find a Republican to be the Speaker of the House if the Republicans have the House majority. Just may be a hell of a row to figure out who that person could be. But Murphy, you're a Republican. What do you think? I think Trump's going to blame if they underperform, win, but underperform because the expectations in the conference are we're going to get 40 seats. And when they don't, Trump's going to roast Kevin and it's going to be a fight and Kevin will not be the next speaker. That's my Kreskin prediction. If, if, if they're, uh, they underperform, if they're in the mid to high double digits, you know, 15, 20, I think he will be speaker. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? Like even the Democrats who have openly said that Pelosi should be replaced will still say how much they respect her. You don't hear a lot of Republicans walking yeah, around, Republicans true. in the House walking <laughs> around and saying, Kevin McCarthy is a great leader, just maybe not the right guy right now, right? He doesn't seem to be engendering that. And you look at what happened to John Boehner and how he struggled with the Freedom Caucus. You look at how Paul Ryan struggled with the Freedom Caucus. It, McCarthy seems every day to be getting railroaded by the MAGA caucus. And so, you know, I don't know why he'd want the job, right? But, yeah. but yeah, I don't think it's certain that he gets it. Well, Nancy has a whole nother career coming in Taiwan too. Let's keep an eye on that. <laughs> every, mm-hmm. everything, everything McCarthy has done for his entire tenure in the house has been aimed at being coming Speaker of the House. And, you know, he's it's like uh, damn Yankees. You know, he wants to play center field uh, for uh, the Washington senators or whatever. And he's willing to trade his soul to do it. And we've seen that and we'll see what that whole fable doesn't end well. Mo, I got one for you from Joshua, who asked, given that Lindsey Graham recently proposed a 15 week national abortion ban, should Dems propose something else to counter? If so, what would it be? I mean, look, first of all, Lindsey Graham's uh, 15-week abortion ban was not a serious piece of legislation, right? It was something to to juice up the Republican base. I think it might have backfired when you see that most of his colleagues immediately went running from it. But the other thing I'd say is Democrats already have, right? You, We remember back in the early days of the summer, right after the Supreme Court decision came down, House Democrats actually passed legislation in the House to codify Roe v. Wade, just didn't have enough Democratic votes in the Senate or any uh, Republican votes either. It didn't have enough votes to pass the Senate. So what what the Democratic message is now to counter that 15-week abortion ban, and they're saying it every single day in every part of the country, elect more Democrats. That's now the Democratic message is by electing more Democrats, we can stop things like this 15-week, this effort to to run a, uh, a national ban on abortion. I also think Lindsey Graham overstepped here because he completely undercut his own party's message on this. Their whole argument all along has been, we don't want there to be a federal standard on abortion. We want right. to send this back to the states. And then he steps forward with a federal ban. Um, that was uh, not something that I think a lot of his colleagues appreciated. 
I think it was too clever by half, but what he was trying to do was create a position that Republicans can say they're for that politically is not nearly as dangerous as a total bad ban. You know, 15 weeks is the world standard. France is 13. I think the, the Nordic countries are 16. Average of democracies is 13 weeks. 13 weeks is not a hugely controversial thing like this no exception stuff, which is death. Or on the liberal side, late term abortions, which we used to win campaigns being against that back in in the 90s uh, when it kind of popped up as a national interest. So that that was it was a political strategy. You're right. It wasn't serious legislation. It was a position he thought people could go to for political advantage. But it's a little late. A lot of them dug in too far in the primary. And I thought it was too clever by half. But th- that yeah. was the intent. Well, 15 was what the Mississippi law was that uh, was under consideration when the court threw out. Right. Uh, row completely. And I, I think, and I think I've said here before, I'm sure McConnell and McCarthy were hoping that Roberts would prevail totally. uh, in, in yeah. support in his position that we should affirm uh, Mississippi, but keep Roe in place. But uh, I think, I think both you guys are right. I think uh, Graham, he thought he was trying to give way a, a raft, throw a raft to uh, Republicans who didn't want to be for a total ban. But Mo's right. It's kind of crazy when the party had been arguing for 50 years this should be a state issue, and uh, his answer is to propose a a national ban. And you're right, Murphy, that it's too cute by half. And because you were so right about that, I'm going Mm. to give you a question as well. Oh, here we go. I'll be right about this, too. Jim has an interesting question. Why is right track, wrong track polling significant? That's the question where voters are asked whether the country's on the right track or wrong track. It seems there are many more reasons for responding, Jim says, wrong track than the president or his party uh, are to blame. With the turmoil in the country due to Trump crazy world, wouldn't people say wrong track thinking of democracy being in jeopardy? Well, I think there might be people on the left who think that Trump is a wrong track driver, maybe even some people in the center. It's an important question. It doesn't ask or mention a candidate's name. It's a mood of the electorate question. And it goes, as David said, do you think things are going the right track? Or they have gotten pretty seriously seriously off off on the wrong track. So for wrong track, you got to have a little motivation. When it's a majority right track, you know, it's morning again in America. Incumbents are very happy. Everything's fine. Reelect, reelect. When it's a majority wrong track and the needle has been stuck there for quite a while, it used to oscillate with the economy. Now, People are wrong track. The question is how much? 60 used to be a high number. Now we can see it in the 70s all the time, which was unheard of. People want to fire politicians. And the anti-politics candidates, be it an Arnold Schwarzenegger, who uh, I got to work for back in the early 2000s running for governor of California in an 80% wrong track environment, or a John Fetterman now in Pennsylvania, if you, regardless of ideology, seem to be not a politician and hostile to the elite political system, you tend to get a lot of interest. You also see more independent candidacies. So it's a powerful thing that sets the agenda. It doesn't rule the election, but it gives you an idea of are the voters smiling and happy or are they carrying Frankenstein torches and looking for the castle? But to most point, and what makes this year so interesting is normally this uh, mid, these midterms are a referendum on uh, the uh, on the incumbent and the direction of the country. But if you can make the alternative unacceptable, there are going to be some number of voters who say, yeah, I don't think things are great, but these guys aren't going to make it better. They're They're not even trying to make it better. They're going to make it worse. 
Right. And right. I think that is uh, where a lot of Democrats are in their uh, in their messaging. Best shot they've got. If you look at that question in the week or two after the insurrection on January 6th, right? I mean, nobody in the wake of that said the country was on the right track, but for very different reasons. And I think, you know, to the, to the heart of the question, um, that is one of the challenges with that poll question is that right now, a lot of people think the country is going to hell in a handbasket and they're blaming the other guys. And now that's not great for incumbency, clearly, but, um, both sides are blaming the other. And, um, and so I do think that question lacks a lot of nuance, a lot of, a lot of clarity, doesn't get the clarity. Just as, as an aside on this, in a highly polarized country where Democrats tend to rally behind Democrats and Republicans behind Republicans, it's interesting to look at independent voters uh, who are cross-pressured on mm -hmm. questions like this and um, uh, who I think six months ago uh, would have tilted very strongly against Democratic candidates and now have come back. And that's why uh, this election is more competitive than it would have been six months ago. Do either of you remember when the last time that right track was net positive over wrong track? Oh, you get little, little bumps like after a presidential inauguration. I don't know if Trump ever got there. I don't know if we ever got into the 50s. I think Reagan era for the 50s. It's tied up before. But the point being, it has been decades yeah. since that people have felt the country's headed in the wrong direction for decades nonstop with maybe a few blips. We've mastered the art of the negative argument and the argument that incentivizes our bases, and they tend to be... Well, they're all grievance arguments on both yeah, sides, exactly. and it feeds and the wrong track. We've incentivized division as opposed to unity. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to get my jaws of life here. I'm going to pry in. All right. Thanks for coming, everybody. Oh, sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's true the partisans on both sides are always wrong track now, especially if they're, you know, they root for whose team is in power. But independent voters are always torn, college-educated ones, between their economic pull toward the Republican right of center and their cultural pull toward left of center. And that will determine this election because if it an economic agenda with a wrong track, Democrats are going to get slaughtered. If it if it's uh, independents pushing back on the cultural stuff they feel threatened by from the Republicans, then you will see some Democratic Senate seats not get wiped out. My money uh, is on a typical wave election between wrong track and inflation, but we're seeing the Senate seats are where it'll be interesting. Mo, it's great to have you. You got to come back more often, and I, I just want to put a little plug in uh, for the Georgetown Institute of Politics. I was I'm the founder of the uh, the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. You came to me when you took on this assignment, and you've done such a splendid job there. It's such a wonderful program at Georgetown, and you, Murphy, have your own version of it at USC. Well, I'm torn because I'm on the board of the University of Chicago uh, Institute of Politics. Which we appreciate, yes. Where we've been trying to rein you in for a decade here, <laughs> unsuccessfully. And I'm a Hoya, so I'm a big fan of what Mo's doing over there. But I am co-director of the University of Southern California's Center for the Political Future, along with Bob Schrum, the retired Democratic legendary consultant. You ought to check us out on our website and social media because we do a lot of Zoom programming. So three great institutes, one great podcast. With one goal. Thank you both for the kind words. And you both have been great mentors to me uh, in this role. And frankly, before I took this role, when we all used to be partisan warriors and 
You know, it's fun having this conversation with three refugees from the political battlefield <laughs> yes. who are now all comfortably uh, sitting in our ivory towers of academia, surveying everything. But I appreciate it. It's so much fun, and it's so, and we're so smart when we don't have responsibility for. Oh, it. I'm still doing campaigns here, so I'm gonna. I'm still sullied by the thing, but but yes. I'm. I got one foot in it by, for sure. He's a semi-refugee. He's a half podcaster, half consultant. I'm sure you both would agree, based on your own experiences on your campuses. Yeah, I, I took this job in part because I felt like I had hit a wall and I was just kind of getting disgusted by my own life's work. Um, I still believed in politics, but I didn't like how we were practicing it. And I hang out with these young people today, man. I hang out with these students and they have such a desire to do it better than I did. I tell them all the time, like, I'm not here to teach you how to do politics because people hate politics. I'm one of the guys that broke it. But, you know, I can show you why we do it the way we do it. You tell me how to do it better. And these kids are so, so optimistic. Amen to that. I I leave leave, uh, the IOP at the University of Chicago every day uh, more optimistic than when I walk in because of the interaction with these young people. And we need them. Uh, The thing that that we just, the best thing we can impart, and everybody knows it now after the last 10 years, democracy is not a spectator uh, sport. It requires investment of ourselves. So even if you're not going to be uh, running for office or running campaigns, even if you're just a citizen, uh, there is an obligation associated with that to be involved and to be aware and to be engaged. And uh, and and these young people really who I interact with, who you guys interact with, they they will be whatever they do. They're yeah. going to be involved. And that's good for the country. I mean, I love it. I look in their young idealistic eyes and I tell them, now get your opponent. You're there to win. gentlemen thank you so much all right guys it was great thanks for having me guys all right take care mo see you later x see ya